What is up, Podheads? Back with another episode of the Podio Slay Podcast. My name is Tony. I am joined by Anthony and Nate. But first, the moment you've all been waiting for, we're just going to rank Rage Against the Machine albums. You guys ready? Oh, let's go. <laughs> Wait, have we done this? No, we did not. We we've didn't. never actually done it. I'll give it to you right now. Evil Empire self-titled Battle of LA. We're done. All right, there let's you go. move on. The string quartet to Rage Against the Machine. I'm not counting Renegades because it's a cover album, which we deep dove on a, an episode way back when. Go check that out. The The audio quality is not great. The conversation's awesome. <laughs> wow. That's How a good intro. Let's go. I'm, I'm good. I'm Anthony. If it's your first episode, I'm Anthony. We got Nate on the ones and twos. Uh, is he a self-titled Rage Truther or is he an Evil Empire Truther? Oh, dude, Evil Empire. I'm with you on that one. There you go. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, episode's I, over. I think we all, yeah, I think we all already. <laughs> That's why we've never right. done that one, right? It's a wrap. <laughs> Let's go to sponsor. I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but behind the scenes, we've had, what, a stretch of like six interviews or, or guests in a row between having Rob on and having Dan on and who Brian from Current. So And some others that we haven't recorded yet, so we're not going to say them. <laughs> but this is an OG. The gang's all back. Like I said a few weeks ago, or it could have been a month, who knows? You're in our living room. You're part of the conversation. Sit back, relax. An old school OG. Yeah, it's like a book club. All right, dude, we'll set up a time, come over, pour a drink, and let's geek out on X, Y, and Z. Well, except uh, you don't have to pretend that you like you didn't read the book because that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in this case, we've all read the book, or in the, uh, you know, as it were, uh, lived the album rollout, album cycle, you know, live shows. We've listened to it a ton. Uh, we're talking about Nine Inch Nails with teeth. Because they're a house band, I would imagine, at this point. I mean, we've talked about Nails off and on the entirety of the podcast. Uh, We've never dedicated, I think, a full episode, but we've dedicated pieces of segments and all that stuff to them. So uh, Trent is one of our, I think all three of us recognize his genius over the course of 30 some odd years, 30 plus years of making music. I don't hold musicians on a pedestal, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. He's not a genius. He's just like you and me. He puts his pants Almost on one leg. Two hundred episodes into this, yeah, nothing's on a pedestal. Yeah. <laughs> just a normal dude with normal feelings that does it really well in music form. We'd have him on the podcast. He, I think, he would test us. Oh God, yeah. He's because a white whale too. He he could mop the floor with us probably intellectually. So like he would. I could see him like pausing us in our tracks and be like, "Did you research this? What did you?" And we do research. That's the thing. Like we're right. not. We don't show up with nothing ready. Like we're not those guys. Not that we know anybody that does that. We have a lot of friends in the community that do their do their homework. But we pride ourselves on being kind of ready and you know have, trying to do things our own way and put a spin on stuff. But he would definitely make us work for it. Yeah, he's a no bullshit. If you've seen or heard any interviews with him he's definitely like a no bullshit i don't have time for bullshit you know wasting time type individual very analytical very obviously we talked about it earlier very smart but yeah i think i think we'd kill this interview if we had him on you know i think we would we would do it justice how actually before we get into with teeth how would we pitch it to him like what would even be our angle that's a great question uh man i we're obviously legacy fans we've been around the music for the majority of our lives if not all of it um, and been watching MTV. I mean, I remember it would be a, like, we've been with you since type of thing. Like, we're not new to the Nine Inch Nails world, but he's done so many. He doesn't do a lot of press, but he's done so many really good interviews when he d- does do them that I would, it would definitely be one that would 
make me like we have to come pull this off and we have to have an angle that would work well good you just that's the pitch we're gonna send that to yeah that hopefully that works so you try <laughs> if you like that you know hit us up dms are open like and subscribe so yeah in lieu of not probably ever chatting with him we're just gonna analyze with we're gonna actually what are we what are we doing we're revisiting with teeth which came out in 2005 do yeah, we want how do we want to do this we want to give our like uh, how we remember the album yeah i think we we kind of similar to any of the other album deep dives we've done we can like maybe give our first reactions to either the announcement or any of the stuff that happened leading up to getting the album yeah i like that i'll lead off i'm ready let's hear it so I remember, and, and we've talked about our buddy Donnie a handful of times on the podcast. So if you spent any time listening to Patio Slave, you know that uh, we've had a, a friend, Nate and I, for sure, we're spending a ton of time with our buddy Donnie around this time. So, you know, late 2004 into 2005. Uh, I think, Nate, before you moved to New York or even Florida, I can't even remember. Where were you at that time? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was in Maine. <laughs> 05, I was in Maine before I got to New York City in 07, yeah. Yeah, but we would hang out a lot, you know, on the weekends with our, our buddy Donnie, and he was a big Nine Inch Nails fan from his older brother and, you know, himself for a very long time before we even kind of started doing that. And it turned it on to me, who then helped turn it a little bit on to Nate, although he knew about him before. I, I didn't introduce him to Nails, but I think we deep dove kind of around the same time. And I remember the announcement coming through. There was a snippet of beside you in time with like some lights and it was a video it was like some lights and some a trailer essentially and you were just like oh my god we're getting a new nails record and it was for me i was really into the band at the time because i've been listening to the fragile a lot going back and listening to you know pretty hate machine and downward spiral and just really finding my way into the music way more than i probably would have if i was you know 15 and we just like were so excited it was i think at the time i would venture a guess to say it was the record that i was the most excited for up until that point in my life just because i was so wow in, yeah. into the band at the time so yeah that that was my first like holy shit we're getting a new nails record and i'm like peaking as a fan of the band this is amazing well because think about leading up to that like take rage against the machine like you knew battle of la was coming out but it was because they released a whole single, right? And then they had like Rage TV, where this was, I'm guessing, Tone, that was YouTube that you saw that clip. It might have been, yeah, or the, or the Nails website, but like it was early, like early yeah. this type of internet. Yeah, so like, again, probably one of the first to do that. You know what I mean? Like have teasers or trailers, you know, leverage the, the technology, and you could really build the hype cycle. You know, it was like a sample of the single. You know what I mean? So you haven't even shaped your thoughts yet, but you are still excited. Yeah, great assessment and really frames the era like 05. Like you said, I think it was the website because it was there was the promotional element for a legacy act like Nine Inch Nails. It was like, well, they can kind of stand on their own. They don't really need ancillary, you know, MTVs of the world to, to promote the band. They have like a cult following. They always did. And similar to your take tone, like because of people like Donnie, I think primarily Donnie, actually, I got into the band and was like, again, also peaking in terms of my total fandom for the band, like deep dove all the lyrics and all the booklets and the history. This is almost like pre Wikipedia for the most part, just like anything I could find on Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, like this band's phenomenal. This guy's an amazing songwriter. 
I'm, you know, beforehand, it's a classic example of seeing someone in the hallway with a Nine Inch Nails logo t-shirt being like, I don't know what that is. It looks strange. Maybe I'll check it out someday. But we were a little late to the game, right? So 99 was the fragile. And we're like hoping like, man, it'd be really cool to see this band come to form again. So with, with Teeth coming out in 05 in the promotional cycle for, that, for this album, like it was, it was like, holy shit, this is our chance. We're a little bit late to the game, but now we get to, we get to see it come. So I think it was like the website or like some kind of teaser snippet video, like a 30 second snippet video. And that was just the signs of the times, but um, similar sentiment and just like peaking in terms of total fandom for, for Nine Inch Nails. Wow. We, we all had very similar stories. I didn't have Donnie, but one of my roommates at the time at college, this was sophomore year of college, big NIN head, big, his favorite band of all time. He was always playing him. And I, I mean, obviously knew, knew them, knew, the, knew of the Fragile, Downward Spiral, Pretty Hate Machine, all that stuff, but was not a, you know, just a casual fan. He got me big, in, big into them. And similar to you guys, this was the first Nine Inch Nails album cycle that I was like a true fan of. You know what I mean? So you, you saw it from the start. You saw the teaser. You saw the single where in the past... I was, I mean, I would have been like, what, 12, you know, nine, when those albums came out, I would not have appreciated them. So I think it's the first one that I not only was hyped for, but I also appreciated. Okay, so that's leading up to it. Album comes out. What are you guys thinking? I have an initial thought. Go ahead. Most accessible Nine Inch Nails album up to that point, especially with the, because um, The Hand That Feeds was the lead single, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, that's... That that's a pop song, you know. Yeah, it really is. Do you guys agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, especially if you look back at the previous releases, the Fragile's a double album and is amazing, and you know, one of our favorite records. We've talked about it a ton, but also that's a lot. Like as a fan, you're like, oh, I'm gonna spend some time with this. I have to to even like unpack it. I'm not even sure I've unpacked it completely, and I've listened to it a million times twenty some odd years later. Has Trent unpacked it? <laughs> probably uh, yes i think you did on with teeth <laughs> funnily enough but i think yeah it's it's you know it's slimmer it's 14 what, 14 songs right and an hour versus two so i would agree with that and you're right the the singles especially the hand that feeds and only were very yeah radio re rock ready yeah there's almost like a loop like a drum loop in the back that makes it accessible. So that is a pretty accurate statement with, with especially mirroring this to like older stuff, which is like so industrial or Gothic or whatever you want to say. Like if you're not in that scene, especially in that time, you had to choose your lane and, you know, sadly that was just the way it was. Um, but this was like a breakthrough of, okay, this is more of a rock album. And I, th and you can see that with, you know, the addition of someone like, Dave Grohl on a handful of tracks on this record. Definitely more digestible, right? 56 minutes, like you said. Fragile, what was it, hour and 40? So, like, there's a conscious, even with, what, six, six years between albums, still a conscious decision to make this, you know, digestible because you know there were B-sides. Like, are there known B-sides for this recording cycle? Yeah. Uh, Home, which was later released on... Hey, Trent does a good job of, like, given some of that stuff to people. So that one, non-entity, there were th another version of Right Where It Belongs. I think another version of Every Day is exactly the same. But yeah, this stuff out there that 
uh, was like B-side. So this, the, if they wanted to, this could have been another two-hour special. Absolutely. I, he was in a better place. I mean, The Fragile was this kind of long, sprawling, a bunch of different feelings. Trent dealing with a lot, both, you know, in his personal life and with substance abuse stuff, which is chronicled. He's clean um, right in this, and he had a lot better time doing that. And uh, I think you can kind of hear it in some of the songs. Listening to that today through that lens, stuff made a little more sense to me than maybe it did when I hit it, you know, it hit me the first time at 19 or 20. Yeah, because was, was that a narrative, like, for this album cycle, like, Trent's, you know, cleaned up or... Because I don't know. Like, yeah. Was it? Yeah, a little like the, bit. Because the news websites were not what they are now. Now it would have been all over Loudwire and Blabbermouth mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And sadly, it kind of sh- shapes what you even yes. think about yeah. it before you even hear it. You know yeah. what I mean? Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I was doing some research. And this album originally was supposed to be a concept album with strong correlation to like getting sober. Whereas The Fragile is really in a dark place, I guess, under the influence. This is maybe the flip side to that. And I don't think he, I think he decided against making it a full-on concept album, uh, just based on what I read. He just didn't think that that was the right direction for the record. But there's hints of that throughout the, the songs and the references and whatnot. But um, it's not like a cohesive concept album in its, in its own right. But, but the clarity is definitely there. It's just... just you know, you can hear it. You can hear it in the sounds. You can hear it in his voice. You can hear it in the, in the writing. Um, but it's funny that I didn't even realize that until I researched it today. You just kind of listen to the songs and understand his emotion and depth, but you don't really relate it to that direct subject matter unless you read like a quote from him, which, which I did. And he said, yeah, I was going through rehab and I got out of it and put out this piece and songs started coming to me a lot easier. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a beautiful, you know, redemption. Well, and yeah, it's not, it's not something that would be on your radar at our age at the time, right? I mean, True. it's cool that we get to live the rollout and the excitement for a, a record that we all, you know, were in the moment super, super stoked for. And looking back on it today to have a completely different connotation, or you know, maybe not completely different, but uh, knowing a lot more than we did at the time, because, you know, 15, 18 years have passed and you're able to read some stuff and find some things out and Trent's been open about things. and. It's a different experience. That's the best part about fucking doing this. It's like, holy shit, this record is new to me today for a different reason. Were they the, when the Hand That Feeds came out, were they the biggest they'd ever been? Because that song was everywhere. Ooh. I don't know, man. Closer was pretty big. Okay, yeah. But like, as far as, like the, the casual music fan, I think that song permeated. I mean, I'm not, song, I'm not saying it was on like top 40 radio, but. I'm thinking if I played that song for my parents, they might have heard it. Well, that's probably the first time I could say that about any Nine Inch Nails song. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. You know, their hit singles from the 90s had like a whole, all those things. Like a lot of people know those just in passing, you know, whether it was on MTV or just in the radio, like, oh, I think I heard that somewhere, you know. But in terms of like accessibility, like we were mentioning earlier, I think this this record might be something that, like you said, if you could play it for your parents and be like, I recognize this just because of the time, really. Promotional mm-hmm. element, like this is, it's not like all black clothing. It's like, oh, I can dig this. Yeah, uh, I, I think to the point of it being accessible, I remember 
people I was hanging out with at the time, other you know, females, and not typically a band that females get into, but some do. I'm not saying they don't. But the ones I was hanging out with wouldn't have grabbed maybe the downward spiral and put it in their CD player. And them knowing only and like knowing the words to only, which is kind of wild if you think about it. Yeah, this it, it permeated. This I mean, I the hand that feeds, like that could have been given to a more mainstream artist and it could have been polished and, you know, gone the pop route and it would have been a even a bigger hit than this was. Like it's, you know, a good song is a good song. A pop artist could knock this over the fence and it would be probably the biggest song on the planet for that year. All right, let's talk about the album itself. After hearing it and obviously putting it back through the lens of today, what are some of the songs that stand out for you guys? Like, Nate, what are your, your like top three or top four songs that kind of kick into gear every time you want to listen to this record? Good question. Nine Inch Nails is such a versatile group, or I guess it's really just Trent, but musician. So it touches on like so many different emotions. And um, the ones that stand out for me are like the full-on in-your-face Nine Inch Nails song, so that the one that fits that mold would be You Know What You Are. Like, right out of the gate, that song just fucking slays. Then, uh, contrary to that, uh, Line Begins to Blur, and it kind of gets you in the zone. That's another Nine Inch Nails flavor of, like, okay, I'm in the zone. I feel feel this. And then, uh, I guess, for a third track, I put three down, is that kind of ballady Nine Inch Nails song, the closing track, right where it belongs, like, it might be my favorite Nine Inch Nails song. It's just so, so deep. Great closer, too. But um, those three tracks for me. You know what you are is all time. I like the lead single, right? Hand That Feeds. Uh, Every Day is Exactly the Same. And Line Begins to Blur. Like those, as I listened back in prep for this, I was like, oh, yeah. This is why that when this came out, you know, we talked about the hype. After it was out, it lived up to the hype. And then I'm sure we'll talk about seeing them live on this tour pretty soon here. That cemented it for me. You know, you always talk about, you know, you see the songs live as a different flavor. It brings out, well, in some bands, the worst in them. But in this case, it brings out the best. Uh, I think we're we're all a broken record here. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the vibe of every day is exactly the same. I mean, it's not a happy vibe, but it, mm. it, I understand it. I've felt that vibe we've all felt that vibe where you're just like ah that dour kind of another day of this i've done this a million times i'm gonna do it again (laughs) today but i think he's talking about like i know what's gonna happen i've done this before i've lived this movie before and it's you know getting clean getting away from all that is what made it easier for him to digest that but that song is is awesome, and it fits in so many different ways for so many different people. It, it, it's one of the best songs I think he's ever done. Right Where It Belongs, great song. The second version, that kind of like quieter... I'll send it to you, Nate. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's it's a pretty cool version of it. I think I like that one even better, but it's it's a cool song. I love that it goes to... He's kind of singing, and it's a little like lo-fi, and then he gets... Yep. He's like live show and it's like, oh, I'm in front of everybody and now I sound perfect. That's a pretty cool like technical aspect of that song. Uh, I love You Know What You Are. The drums on that song fucking rule. That's Grohl at his finest. Uh, People, you know, everybody knows that Dave has helped out on this record. He was on, what, six tracks, I think. Uh, And this is the one that I think he stands out on. So, yeah, those ones are all great. Every Day is Exactly the Same was nominated for 
uh, Grammy, or maybe did it win? It was nominated for won, a Grammy. Yeah. It was nominated in 2007, and I think there was another Grammy nomination, Hand That Feeds, nominated for uh, Best Hard Rock Performance mm. in 2006. So in two different years. So that's, that's, that's unique. Always, you know, getting two noms is unique, but in different years is unique too. Mm -hmm. Yep, true. Yeah, that is a good point. The nominations also given the fact that it's a complete departure from like what was happening in music at that time in 05, 06. It's not this style of music at all. It's really pop punk, right? 05, 06. It was still kind of pop punk and like the strokes and the hives and the yeah. bands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, electronic music, like, not that this is EDM, but EDM didn't get love until late 2000s, I feel like. No, this has got, like, some synth pop, but some, like, you know, darker goth kind of tones, but it's also a hard rock record. He, the thing about Trent is he can do so many different things, and I think they're kind of all on display on this record, which is why we all like it, is that it, it, it hits succinctly for him a bunch of different pieces of what make Nine Inch Nails what they are. And I think this was, like, critically, it, it went over pretty well. And, and I, I looked back at, you know, different websites like Loudwire and Spin. Like, they ranked the Nine Inch Nails discography. And this was in the top three to five Nine Inch Nails releases, which, I don't know, do you guys? Like, I, I feel like there's some that you just can't put this over. Like, it's just, it's, yeah. it, it ain't happening. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's about right. I think like four, maybe. Yeah, three or four. Uh, it depends on when you came up with it. I'm a fragile guy, number one all day, and then probably downward spiral, and then probably this. Do you yeah. write for Loudwire? Is that <laughs> is that what they did? Uh, <laughs> well, thanks, they Loudwire. A, they added at three. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Did I stump you, Nate? <laughs> no, I was thinking it's interchangeable. I think really. I mean. Downward spiral and and with teeth, kind of. I think we always talk about it, or like depending on the week, you know, where would it sit? And after listening to this record like four times today, I'm like, I think this would sit right after the fragile, and I think it's a perfect progression from the fragile, really. So another one of those rec records that could not have come out beforehand. It, it was supposed to happen in its time, Agreed. and obviously that's a big reference to the fact that he got clean, and mm -hmm. there's yep. a lot of references to that, so it makes sense. You you just saw me unmute because I was going to tell you that's why I had to come after because yeah. you get clean. But it, it, yeah, it, it's it fits in his discography where it is. And I we talked about concept albums earlier. The next one is a concept album, Year Zero. So it's funny that he had that idea but didn't shake it. He just moved it on to the next thing. So they they released the Fragile in '99. They come back with this album in 2005. So six years. I don't know the touring history, but were they actively touring in that stretch? Because the answer to that kind of feeds into a point I'm going to make here in a second. But do you guys know? Off the top of my head, no. I will look it up. But this record, they had a, a ton of shows in 05 because of it. And, I mean, we saw a bunch of them. And we'll talk about those in a second. But I don't know that there was a ton of touring leading up to this record. I think there was some but it got kind of blitzed after this was on its way. Yeah, from my understanding, the Fragility Tour 2.0 ended, and he basically walked away from it, almost like went on hiatus to an extent. Band, writing, everything. I mean, there's some pretty 
deep quotes of him saying, you know, I was off the deep end. I was just drinking and doing drugs and just really let myself go. And so I think I really, I want to say that there was no shows whatsoever. And that's why I think for us, you know, being so amped that they were coming back, it seemed like this band was done forever. So for them to come back and come back strong, I was like, oh, wow, not only are they back, but he's in, I remember when we saw him, like the guy's in great shape. He looks great. Songs sound mm -hmm. great. It was like a rebirth of Nine Inch Nails. According to concert archives, and this is obviously a, a tad flawed, but 62 shows in 2000 and nothing until 05. So I'm sure there was some less than nothing, but uh, yeah, a little bit of a break. Which makes the rollout, the live rollout and the return so crazy because you have this, the hand that feeds, which is maybe the most poppy song they've ever had, but they're playing theaters. We saw them at the Orpheum. They could have played the garden. It was, it was unique. They almost had like small residencies at these, uh, not clubs, but, but theaters. Well, they played the garden later that year. Well, there you go. So it was, I, I'd love to, that's something we would have to ask him. Like, what was the, it was a choice, right? Because they could have sold out the garden in 05 after being gone for six years. Absolutely. Well, those shows at the Orpheum, which we talked about on a very early episode uh, back in 2020, uh, like maybe even a single digit episode. I can't even remember, but it was a ways back. And they were like, let's toss these small club shows out or like, you know, theater shows out because it's been so long. Like, let's get back out in front of people and see what happens. And they, I remember seeing those show, tickets go on sale for the, the Orpheum shows, which is a tiny little venue in Boston comparatively to the, you know, the garden or wherever. And being like, we have to get on this because it's going to sell the fuck out. And it did both nights. Yeah, I think I did read again. This is recollecting from like those those days of researching anything Nine Inch Nails and, and reading something that he had said that we've been gone for a while. I don't know where our audience is given, you know, it's, it's a whole different crowd that came up with Nine Inch Nails. We're like this new crowd in, in reality. So it's almost like a test market. Like, Hey, let's play some theaters. They'll probably sell out. Cause we know we have, we have this base of fans, but can we really do arenas again? I don't know. Because that's a big undertaking. And I know for the fragility tour, he wanted to go all out to, you know, so much that he ended up, you know, digging into, into his own pockets to, for the production and whatnot. So for him, it's like such a perfectionist element where it's like, if he's going to do arenas, he really wants it to be 10 out of 10. And if it's going to be a half sold arena, then, well, that's just, or, you know, it's a loss. So smart. Again, the guy's a genius. So in, in all, in all sense. So even going the the tour rollout is like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to be well calculated and um starting in theaters was a was a kind of a cool move i have a confession guys so i went to the we, we were all at the i think the may 12th date at the orpheum yep. uh dresden dolls opened yep but i did something the first time i ever did something was related to this show uh and it was uh reselling tickets at a markup i <laughs> so i bought four tickets when these things went on sale and it was a hot ticket. I don't know how soon they sold out, but sold out big time. I think it was like 70, 60, 70 bucks a ticket. Bought four of them. My buddy and I went. I sold two tickets on eBay and pulled 250 a pop for wow. them. And here's the awkward part. You guys ready for this? I sat next to the couple that bought them and they, 
they asked me they were like do you guys did you buy wow. these tickets on uh, ebay and i you said yes it was like jimmy the dunce i i didn't say anything i, just, I was like, like no nah, i don't thanks know for the, thanks for the free show bro <laughs> no kidding <laughs> uh where were you were you down bottom i was down bottom under the overhang so i remember the the top part right the mezzanine i think it or the balcony goes balcony. over yeah, yeah you, yep we were under the the balcony below and we talked about this way back but we were we were in the balcony and pieces of the ceiling were falling on us cuz it was so loud and and like raucous in there our tickets up top were $38.70 with fees wow like a $30 ticket and uh $1 venue free which i mean $1 <laughs> venue fee today 18 years later it would probably be a $13 venue fee which is crazy but yeah, uh, that, that's wild and good for you for making a couple bucks because free show you were yeah free show times two. They opened with you know what you are, and I remember just the lights being like, "All right, Sean, that's who I went with." I I it's now cemented why you love this band because he I think he'd seen them maybe in the late nineties, obviously different setting, but I remember when that kicked in and you just see a silhouette of Trent, it was. I don't know. I, I can't even describe it. I was, what, 19 at the time? 20? 19? Uh, nothing like I'd ever seen up to that point, and probably nothing like I'd ever seen at our age now. Like, And probably never will, because are they ever going to play the fucking Orpheum again? Probably no, not. No. And this is the like time frame when Nine Inch Nails and Trent decided to make the live, I think make the live show a fucking spectacle. Like, he threw everything he could at the live show as far as like making the lights cool, making the the visuals cool, making the DVD, like if you were going to buy the DVD two years later, cool, which I did when the Beside You in Time DVD came out. And I was like, this is so cool. Even just like watching this in my fucking room uh, in 2007 being like, oh man, I, I've seen this concert four times, but I don't fucking care because it's awesome even on DVD because no expense was spared and no, you know, creative stone unturned as far as like at that time to make that look that way so i i get why it hit you because it definitely hit me yeah it's cool man there's a simplicity element to it because I, I i remember i know exactly what you're talking about twine it's like almost like a strobe lights that go to the beat of the drums yes. i remember yes. it vividly yep but down to the merch like there's a simple element like let the music speak for itself same with the live production it's like you don't need like tons of visuals and whatnot just have the music and the lighting and some you know some kind of stage presence and obviously the band's just up there slaying so it's it's not over the top but it's almost it's just right and i can see why there's so much attention to detail uh that put, that trent puts into it you know down to the to the logo really but everything's just perfect perfect band everything about it and that show just is a great example of that yeah and they played like a 1920 song set five songs from with teeth so they leaned heavy like most bands do you know obviously promoting a new album but i think you're right i think this was like the comedian doing a test market you know in the small local club seeing how it hits and then you know because you said they said they played the garden later that year like that was the level tour that's a show regret and we've done show regret on this uh this pod before but nate tried like hell to get me to go to see them with Queens of the Stone Age at the fucking Boston, the garden in Boston. Yep. And I was like, I can't. It's the first week of college. I got to go <laughs> to my, 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 I just skipped last night to go to the Red Sox game. I have to go to class <laughs> tonight. <laughs> he, 
here I am uh, wishing I had done that too. Should have stayed down there. <laughs> I went to that show by myself. Drove all the way to the TV uh, garden. I wanted saw to go the show so and, dro- and drove all the way back. Parked my car across the street from the garden. Walked in as Queens of the Stonies were walking on stage. So the timing was impeccable. But um, yeah, dude, the Orpheum to the garden. We also saw him at the Tweeter Center in Mansfield, Mass. For this, for this we did. tour, uh, and we saw him in Portland, Maine, too. Yep. Yep. Two days later, we saw him in Twitter. I, I have the dates. It was June 21st, 2006 in Portland, Maine, and then June 23rd, 2006 at Twitter uh, in, Bo- in outside of Boston, just south of Boston. And, like, vastly different shows. Because, Nate, you and I oh, got yeah. all the way to the front at the Civic Center in Portland. Like, we yep. were on the stage, essentially, from the majority of that show. Uh, and it was a fucking wild show. And, and everybody that, was, that we know that grew up here, lived here, and went to that concert still talks about how cool that concert was. And then to turn around and see it again, you know, at, at Tweeter, which is an outdoor Comcast center, whatever it's called now, outdoor massive amphitheater shed type place. Pretty wild to, to catch it again there. But I had so much more fun in Portland because we were right up front. Do you guys, switching up from the live element, do you think this album is forgotten? Because most, do you, like, do you think most Nine Inch Nails fan, uh, probably, this probably is not the first album they're going to put on. It's a good question. I think there's a lot of similarities to Nine Inch Nails and the band Tool. Like, I think this was a return to form, but also like a whole new crop of fans. So this is like 10,000 days for Tool. There's a whole, it's a great fucking record. Is it the first record Tool fans put on? Probably not. It's probably Enema or Lateralis. For Nine Inch Nails, it's probably the Fragile or Downward Spiral. Is it forgotten? I don't, I don't think so. But um, that's a great question. For us, no, right? Because we, like, we, it was literally our, like, it was our return. Like, oh, fuck, dude. Nice Nails are back. I don't think it's forgotten. I think it's underrated. Look at the track list. Like, yeah, come yeah. on. Well, and putting together my, like, top tracks for this, I gave you three, but I have seven of them here. Like, mm. I loved Beside You in Time. I loved The Line Begins to Blur. I love Right Where It Belongs. I love Sunspots. I, love, I mean, the, the record's good from front to back. And listening back to it today, thinking to myself, I was not sure how I'd feel about this. Cause it had been a while since I just sat down and listened to it, but I'm still vibing with it the way that I did when I was 21 years old. And now I'm, you know, much older than that. And I see it differently, but I still like it. So yeah, I think you're probably right. Underrated for sure. Maybe a tad forgotten because of, you know, other things that might get reached for by, by nine inch nails fans or, or the general public. But this, this record's really good. All right. A couple quick factoids and, uh, you know, pieces, the live band. The live band has changed a bunch. Atticus Ross helped out, uh, and he's he's did a bunch of soundtracks with Trent, and then joined the band in 2016. And then you know they they had uh, to find the new band, but a, a guy that's come up on our podcast a ton. We've never talked to him. We'd love to. Played a little bit on this tour, and ended up in the band for a hot minute. Jordy Wayne. Nope, he was yes, but not not him. Josh Freeze. Josh Freeze. Yep. Oh, Freeze. Yeah, another another through line of a lot of the things we've talked about on this podcast, Josh Freeze. Also, mastered in Portland, Maine. Really? Yeah. Wow. Bob Bob Ludwig? Uh, yeah, Adam at, at Gateway. Yep. Uh, under the, the Bob Ludwig tutelage back in the day. But yeah, Adam Ayan, who's been with them as well. And uh, so many cool records have been mastered in our, our little neck of the woods, man. I mean, that's... I'd love to. I'd love to go say hey to those guys and be like you guys have touched so much greatness it's, it's so cool 
Yeah, I can see it now. We're in the hallways just geeking at it all, on all the plaques on the wall. Like, oh, wow. But did you want to talk? Oh, no, yeah, for sure. We just hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. Um, well, when I was looking on Wikipedia earlier, I saw uh, Rich Costi's name, who we've kind of tossed him around as a potential guest on the podcast. Just, you know, he's worked with Frank Turner, Muse, and Siga Rosa, and all those guys. But takes a village to pump out. Uh, <laughs> albums like this man there are a lot of people behind the scenes that or 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 not necessarily behind the scenes but ones that don't get the the you know the do that a trent Reznor gets or whoever because they're pulled in as a session musician whether it be live or to play on a record and they get credits and stuff but you don't realize it i mean we're looking just look through next time you're you're bored find an old classic rock record look through their wikipedia see who played on it or see who toured on it. And you'd be like, wow, there's some names that I didn't realize were, were there. It happens all the time. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. And we add, there's just one last thing. Cause it's, I don't want to say uh, bizarre, but you know, we kind of poke fun once in a while, but there is another little tidbit that I researched today that Trent attributes Rick Rubin as a huge inspiration and mentor for writing this record, which you know, we've read some things that Rick Rubin is kind of on the sidelines and lets the creative freedom kind of happen. But I guess there was a, a real cohesive collaboration between Trent Reznor and Rick Rubin in making this happen. So I thought that was cool to see because it's just usually the other way around. It's usually like, yeah, he's the producer. You know, I didn't see him much. This is the opposite. It was a very much so like they worked together on everything from the storyline to the, you know, the song direction and everything. So it was something that he called out personally. And I don't think Trent Reznor would have said something like that if it wasn't accurate. So something I wanted to mention. I'm not sure that, that Rick was a producer on this. I think he was just a, when coming up with this stuff, a muse. Oh, really? Yeah, I read that in yeah. Wiki. I was like, huh. No, so did I. And I think I read it differently than you did. Well, it just says that producer Rick Rubin, so just in general, uh, was his mentor and source of inspiration throughout the planning and writing process of the album. All right, what are your memories of this record uh, out there in, in Podhead land? Did you live it like we did? Were you at shows? Did you, did you check out you know, one of the club shows? Did you check out one of the amphitheater shows, outdoors, live, all that stuff? Or you know, is this your first kind of foray into listening to or talking about Nine Inch Nails? We'd love to hear from you. And hey, if you've checked us out at any point and haven't hit us up, hit us up. The DMs are open. The email is open. It's coming in a second. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from anybody that has checked out the podcast. Uh, it's really cool to, to kind of get some feedback from the people who are listening. And, and we're so happy that any of you do. Yeah, I echo that. All this content is brought to you by nerds, just like you. <laughs> I'm in. You're in. We're all in. I went to a Dresden doll show and all I got was this Nine Inch Nail set. See ya. <laughs> Me too. Peace. <laughs> Cheers. Coin operated. Peace. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Patio Slave. We are at Patio Slave on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places that you can find us on social media. Facebook, Patio Slave Podcast. YouTube, Patio Slave Podcast there. Email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you want to become a supporter, click on the link at the bottom of the episode and give us a dollar, give us five bucks. It keeps the lights on, keeps us going. We really appreciate that stuff. Thank you. <laughs>